Welcome to another episode of EMAGCast. My name is Lavinia Turian, and I'm a medical student at Oregon Health and Science University. On this Talks Tales episode, I will discuss a patient encounter involving toxic hydrogen peroxide ingestion, and then Dr. Zane Horowitz will share some of his expertise on the subject. A 28-year-old female presented to the emergency department with diffuse nausea and vomiting complaining of burning in her throat. She woke up in the middle of the night and drank from what she thought was a bottle of an electrolyte drink out of the fridge. Soon after, she became extremely nauseous and began to profusely vomit and described a burning sensation in her throat. It was soon discovered that the bottle was reused to contain 35% hydrogen peroxide and was poorly labeled. A CT abdomen pelvis was obtained showing extensive portal venous gas throughout her liver. On exam, she was mildly distressed with some abdominal tenderness to palpation, more in the right upper quadrant. The patient was kept in Trendelenburg to prevent any gas emboli from potentially migrating and causing neurological damage. Hyperbaric oxygen treatment was recommended, but was made difficult to it being the 4th of July holiday and the nearby hyperbaric center was closed. Endoscopy showed severe erosive esophagitis and gastritis with small areas of black necrotic changes. After resting in Trendelenburg with frequent neurochecks, a 24-hour repeat CT abdomen pelvis showed complete resolution of the extensive portal venous gas. However, the patient left AMA soon after due to the onset of alcohol withdrawals, despite being warned of the risk of esophageal or gastric perforation. She was called the next day to check in to make sure she was okay and recommended follow-up with GI. Here with me today to discuss toxic hydrogen peroxide ingestion is Dr. Zane Horowitz, an emergency medicine physician and professor at Oregon Health and Science University, who also serves as the medical director for the Oregon, Alaska, and Guam Poison Centers. Well, thank you, Dr. Horowitz, for joining us here today. Um, I wanted to start off with just telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got to your current position and role here. Well, I, I came here in 1997 um, after about 20 plus years in California, UC Davis, to take over as the Poison Center Director. They're recruiting toxicologists, I'm training in that, wanted to do that more full time, and pretty much have done half and half emergency medicine and medical toxicology since, and we've got a toxicology fellowship uh, here on site uh, pretty much all those years. To start off, can you walk us through what the Poison Center's role is whenever they receive a call, uh, especially regarding a toxic ingestion? Yeah, the Poison Center, every state has a Poison Center, and our Poison Center number can be dialed from anywhere, and we'll get you to the Poison Center that serves your area, usually. Um, And at least in our situation, we have mostly nurses and some pharmacists who are here 24 hours a day, they don't work 24-hour shifts, they work like eight, 10-hour shifts, but someone's here all the time and they answer the phone. We get about 50,000 calls a year serving Oregon, and then we also have some federal grants to serve Alaska and the U.S. territory of Guam. Well, as far as uh, this hydrogen peroxide acute gas embolism, we kind of got interested in it um, pretty much early on since I first got here back, literally the first year I think we saw three cases of this, which I had not seen before. Mm -hmm. And uh, my fellow at the time, Mike Mullins, uh, actually published that in Clinical Toxicology Journal. It was a pretty dramatic case of uh, an older guy who drank from a pitcher, unlabeled clear fluid in the refrigerator, looked like water, sat down in the chair, and within about 
an hour just completely had a stroke. Left side hemiphoresis, dense stroke, found air in his brain. We did hyperbaric dive to shrink the air bubbles and he completely recovered, literally got out of the chamber and like 90 minutes later and he was normal. Wow, that's incredible. Um, so we wrote that up and you know, at the time, I think we used the verbiage, like this is the first reported resolution of you know acute stroke. And, but we had seen more cases over the years as did other poison centers that get called on this periodically as well. And another fellow of mine, uh, Lauren Keith French, um, also decided to look back at our experience and he published um, basically little vignettes of about 11 cases that had similar findings. None was quite as severe as that. But we had a few CTs with gas embolism throughout the liver and a couple of patients who also had cerebral events. And then it kind of fell into sort of a controversial area we, as we talked about this off and on in meetings. I mean, a lot of poison centers just didn't do anything much with peroxide because they were thinking 3% dilute peroxide. That's never, ever been a problem, and that part is true. But this new nutraceutical peroxide, this 35% peroxide, where I guess the thought was you're supposed to take a little dropper of it and put it in your fruit juicy whipped blended drink, (laughs) and it would aerate it and make you somehow healthier or better in some way. But it looked just like water. It was clear. It was tasteless. People left it in the refrigerator in bottles and water pitchers. And then usually the unsuspecting other person who lived in the home would drink it. And the usual scenario was immediately the patient would have nausea, vomiting, literally foaming at the mouth, foam coming out of their nose, uh, upper abdominal epigastric pain. And uh, we decided early on to start sending all these folks to the hospital and to get an immediate non-contrast CT. And if we saw gas in their portal venous system, Mm -hmm. we were recommending hyperbaric dive to shrink the bubbles because this is just like the bends with gas bubbles where they were not supposed to be in the vascular system. Um, And so the big question was, you know, is this necessary? Because over the years, while originally people were excited to do this, Slowly but slowly, so that our colleagues in the hyperbaric world were like, do we really need to do this in every case of this? And this always seemed to happen at inconvenient times and hours. Right. Um, and their, their community was saying, no, we could just watch these folks. And we said, you know, we have a couple of cases. We never ever published this of just watching these folks and them having strokes later. Mm-hmm. So finally, another fellow, uh, Ben Hatton, came along. And he, not just did our poison center data, he wrote to all the poison centers. We identified through numerical record keeping which cases were hydrogen peroxide cases. And he accumulated a few hundred of these, got them not to just give us the poison center data, but the actual charts that we can read through as far as the sequence of the course of events. Mm -hmm. And we finally published that uh, with Ben Hatton as a lead author and Rob Hendrickson current Poison Center director and myself, uh, and also Keith French, who was one of our faculty by then, that published the earlier um, uh, anecdotes uh, in 2016. And we found something kind of impressive in that um, the morbidity and mortality of this was far higher than even we had imagined, about 14% of people who called Poison Centers with hydrogen peroxide ingestions died or had permanent neurologic deficits, right. like strokes. 
Um, and so this helped lended some support to what we had been doing that maybe some other places had not been doing, which was to send these folks in, see if they have air bubbles anywhere. If they had no neurologic symptoms, we just scan their abdomen. Mm-hmm. If there's gas in their abdomen, we recommend that a dive, but clearly if there's a stroke or neurologic symptoms of air in their brain, vascular system, we were recommending hyperbaric. Um, and there's a lot of hyperbaricists that said, well, we're only gonna do the ones that have brain embolism, because I think the other one gets absorbed. And we had a few cases where honestly, small bubbles just in the liver did get absorbed. And so it came down to this dive first or dive when symptomatic paradox. And we were one end of the spectrum. We said, um, it is so much simpler to find the gas bubbles with an on-contrast CT in minutes, get you to a hyperbaric chamber, hopefully within hours, shrink the bubbles, and you can go home. Nothing bad is gonna happen, and we never had a case where after a hyperbaric dive treatment that anything bad happened. Or you can wait. You can either wait at the original hospital that didn't have a hyperbaric chamber, or you can come to the hospital that had a hyperbaric mm-hmm. chamber and do hourly neuro exams in an ICU or neuro floor, and then if anything happens, be it three in the afternoon or three in the middle of the night, then you have to get everybody down to the hyperbaric chamber and put the person in there and deal with the catastrophe. Our bias was do it up front, do it early, resolve the problem, and there's no morbidity, you know, there's no scramble at an odd hour or even the risk of transferring someone long distances to uh, get it done. Were uh, there any risks or benefits to diving first or diving when s- symptomatic? Well, I think once symptomatic, I mean, you, you know, the die is cast. You have to right. do something if you have a stroke. Hopefully the thing that they don't do or they understand that this is different than a stroke person who comes into the emergency department and you do all the usual stroke stuff where you'd find the, the gas bubble, we usually get uh, you know, the CT and the NIN, NINS exam and we call neurology and we talk about TPA. Well, these people don't need TPA. What they need is increased atmospheric pressure up to about two and a half to 2.7 atmospheres to shrink the bubbles that are in their brain, just like a scuba diver came up to you fast, make them go away and everything gets better pretty instantaneously. Um, uh, so clearly, once you have symptoms, things have to be done. Right. The question is, are you willing, this is a cost, not a cost, but a risk-benefit analysis. Do you want to take the chance on 14% of the people who walk through the door that you find gas embolism in their liver only? You know, one out of six or seven of them are going to have a neurologic event. Mm-hmm. And hopefully you'll get them right into the chamber and make it go away. But some of these had long-term neurologic deficits that were devastating or death or died. Five of the people in the 294 cohort in the bigger study died um, because either they couldn't get through a chamber or various reasons. Um, so, I mean, we, we do a lot of things in emergency medicine, certainly, where we mobilize the stroke team, we mobilize the STEMI team, we mobilize the trauma team. Um, but people don't really get excited about the, the gas bubble team uh, for <laughs> hyperbaric. That doesn't exist anywhere. So we're sort of standing on our soapbox a little bit and sort of advocating for this. Um, and sometimes it's hard to get 
person to a chamber for a variety of reasons. Right. Sometimes age is a reason. Some of the chambers will not uh, accommodate children, and that means up to your mm. 17th birthday and 364 days. Um, and sometimes it's uh, some hyperbaric chambers are a nine to five operation, and after that period of time, they don't really do emergencies. Right. So like in the case of this patient mm -hmm. that I discussed, um, it was 4th of July, mm -hmm. so everything was closed and mm -hmm. the nearest hyperbaric chamber was also closed. Are there any other um, interventions that can be done to minimize the risk of developing a long-term disability or any neurological deficits? Uh, no, I mean the risk is there, It's at least by statistically, it's one out of six or seven patients. You know, some people have discussed with us, but has not been studied. Well, maybe some of those patients had patent foramen ovales, and they didn't know about it because who knows? You know, mm -hmm. if you live a normal life and you don't have any adverse events, uh, maybe we should do a cardiac echo on these folks. And if they have a PFO, then they're higher risk. And if they don't have a PFO, we can just do the neuro check um, protocol. Um, we did have a case. We never published it or wrote it up, but that did have a cardiac echo done that clearly did not have a patent for mental okay. valley and went on and had a cerebral emboli hmm. nonetheless. So it's not just that's the only way to get the gas bubble from the liver through the heart to the brain. The gas bubbles just seem to flow with the normal blood flow of oxygen through the pulmonary tree and, and on onward. Um, I think you have to have a discussion with the, the patient when that comes up. It's like it's not like there's a mandatory trauma center open all the time where you can transfer people. There isn't a mandatory hyperbaric center. And some states don't even have a single hyperbaric chamber. So we're talking about putting someone in a plane or a helicopter and flying them somewhere. So you have to have a discussion and say, this is where you may need to go. It may be very far away. These are the risks of transport. This is the risk of sitting tight and doing nothing. Um, we're not gonna send these folks home, but we're gonna watch them and do neuro checks and perhaps they'll need a second CT at that point to make sure everything's resolved. And a lot of them will resolve, you know, six out of seven, seven out of eight will just, the gas will be absorbed. Um, like our colleagues in hyperbaric medicine often tell us it will be. Um, <laughs> but it's a question about how much a gambler you want to be. I know we certainly don't tolerate a 10 to 15 percent risk in other things that we do, we certainly wouldn't tolerate that risk for sending someone home with chest pain or a suspected pulmonary embolism right. or even a suspected appendicitis, uh, which evolves a little bit more slowly than those other things. Um, it's just that this entity is rare. I don't think it's completely well understood outside of maybe the tox and emergency medicine community. Um, and it's often a bit of um, selling pitch to the hyperbaric unit who may or may not have dealt with one of these before. Um, so it's complicated and of course when something happens it's always like in the middle of the night on 4th of July when you know it's yeah, all, the all, all, the, all, the, all the wrong things are, are stars are misaligned. Okay. And so you mentioned hmm. some of the focal neurological deficits that can arise. Are there any other signs and symptoms that one should look for if a patient does come in with yeah. this ingestion? Well some of the Patients in uh, the paper that Van Hatton wrote had a cardiac events. They either had arrhythmias mm -hmm. or hypoxia um, or elevated troponins that were essentially a silent MI. So 
if I was going to admit the person and watch them carefully, it would require that they be in an ICU, that they be on a tele-unit, be on a pulse oximetry, um, get a trip, serial troponins like we often do with cardiac events, do serial Q1 hour or more frequently neurologic ex exams on these folks. So they're very ICU intensive to quote watch and wait um, versus to just do the dive or let the pump symptomatic. Um, but I mean, uh, often unfortunately, and there's a set of other diseases that your zip code determines your fate many times. Right, and this is one of those things that is also maybe true. And have you seen a trend in calls for this particular ingestion over the past few years? I think it's down a little bit from okay. like the 90s. Um, I mean, a lot of health foodie things kind of come and go. Right. Um, and then things come around in cycles again. Um, we still get occasional calls. Um, they're sort of fewer and far between because um, it's still out there. It's a you know, over-the-counter product that anybody can go out and get. Um, but I think there's a, a slightly lower amount than we used to see, which okay. is probably good. Yeah, that's a good sign. Mm -hmm. That it's kind of the health phase is fading a little bit. Is there anything else that you'd like to add or inform people about hydrogen peroxide or the poison center? Well, poison centers here, 24 hours a day. No question is too simple, or we are happy to answer anything from parents, from concerned relatives, uh, from paramedics, from doctors, from nurses, from pharmacists, from anybody. Um, to discuss any drug or chemical or botanical or otherwise exposure, um, and we're happy to do that. And all, we have a huge database of information, and our docs have a lot of experience with things that are sometimes pretty exotic. Um, and so we can, we can, we're here to help and listen and to get you through uh, an ingestion or exposure. That was very reassuring to know that it's just a phone call away. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Dr. Horowitz, for answering these questions and All right. discussing this topic. All right. On our website, you can find more information on this topic, as well as some of the papers from Dr. Horowitz referenced in this talk.